morning, good afternoon, and welcome to Lambda Weekly. I'm Dave Taffet here in the studio with the late Patty Fink, and our guest is District 14 uh, candidate, uh, Dallas City Council District 14 candidate, Paul Ridley. Um, Paul is a longtime um, resident of District 14. He's uh, a member of the Oakland Committee, and he's going to tell us a little bit about himself. Hi, Paul. How are you? Hi, Dave. I'm doing just great today. Good. Um, I'm here with Patty. And uh, Hi, Paul. Hi, Patty. Uh, and um, why don't we just start with you? Uh, first of all, like Patty just said, I love when the show starts with a little crisis on the phone because it's all downhill from there. <laughs> <laughs> and just to be clear, next week our guest will be... David um, Blewett. David Blewett. Who's the incumbent uh, that Paul is running against uh, in the runoff. Runoff is June 5th. That's correct. It's June 5th, and early voting starts tomorrow. That's right. Or Tuesday. Does it start tomorrow or Tuesday? No, it starts tomorrow. It does start tomorrow. it goes through the end of the month, uh, except for uh, Memorial Day, and then we come back on Tuesday, June 1st, for the last day of early voting. Right. And then the election itself is on a Saturday. A lot of people think all election days are on Tuesdays, but they're not. The municipal ones are on Saturday. Right. Um, Paul, tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you and how did you get into uh, politics, deciding to run for office? Sure. Well, I have uh, lived in Dallas for over 30 years in the Munger Place neighborhood for 28 of those years. And uh, I came to Dallas after finishing law school down at UT in Austin. Uh, previously, I had um, uh, degrees in architecture and urban planning. I have professional work experience in those fields before I decided to go back to school and get a law degree. And so I've uh, spent uh, 30 years of my career practicing construction law and commercial litigation. And in the last 15 years or so, I've gotten interested in civic affairs and uh, local politics and uh, helped out in some political campaigns for city council and then decided that uh, I could give back to the city and um, applied for a position in the Landmark Commission. And Angela Hunt appointed me. I served there for four years. Enjoyed that uh, very much because of my background as an architect that was interested in preserving our building heritage. And then Angela asked me to move over to the Plan Commission, and I've served there for eight years before being term limited in late 2019. That uh, experience was a wonderful way to get to know better how the city government works, uh, how things get done at City Hall, and how we manage our development entitlement system at City Hall. And that entails uh, with work of the plan commission in approving plats and approving rezoning requests for uh, different types of development projects. And that was also an opportunity to get to know our neighborhoods better in District 14. Uh, there are so many wonderful neighborhoods in the district uh, of all natures, uh, single family, duplex, uh, mid-rise, high-rise, multifamily, and there's a real spirit amongst our neighborhoods, a pride in our district and in the um, things that we have done in District 14. We have a great city, but I saw that there were things, issues that we needed to work on. And in fact, the theme of my campaign 
is making Dallas better. Um, one of the reasons we wanted to have you on is because you are running for District 14. And for people who don't know, uh, just because it's a random number, uh, District 14 includes part of Oak Lawn. It goes from Cedar Springs toward Central Expressway, uh, kind of wrapping around the Sohip area and going across Turtle Creek and up Fitzhugh and across the Central Expressway. And the rest of the district is uh, East Dallas. M Streets. M Streets and a little bit of downtown. Yes, it includes uh, most of the business um, district in downtown. It uh, is encompasses the northern part of downtown. It does not include City Hall and, of course, also includes Uptown. Oh, and, and Uptown, right, right, right. Uh, whereas District 2, which right now is Adams District. Um, well, look, we have so many Adams. Adam Madrona. Mayor Pro Tem, Adam Madrona. <laughs> Need to specify. Yes, um, a fifth of the of the entire council, City council are Adams. Yes, right. uh, that one wraps around <laughs> District 14, uh, so uh, it goes through the southern part of downtown and um, Deep Ellum, Deep Ellum into Deep Ellum, and two districts butt up against each other. Uh, but it includes the historic neighborhood, so that was one of the reasons that we wanted uh, you to come on. You mentioned you were on the uh, Plan Commission and the Landmark Commission. What does the Landmark Commission do? It helps preserve our historic neighborhoods. Uh, our historic districts uh, set certain regulations for changes to the buildings. And the purpose of those is so that we preserve the building's uh, original architecture. And the uh, issue that um, the issues that come to the Landmark Commission are when people want to, for example, paint their house a different color. Uh, that's um, a, a frequent request. Uh, they want to renovate the building by um, putting new siding on it, new windows in it, new doors, and it even includes some landscaping elements. And it depends, it varies from historic district to historic district depending upon the terms of the historic district ordinance for that neighborhood. And so they're not all the same, and that's one of the challenges of the Landmark Commission is to become familiar with all the district uh, districts uh, for historic buildings in the city. Uh, and uh, they meet monthly, uh -huh. and um, they um, uh, usually have a, uh, an architect, an historian, and there are certain required people that they always have to have on the Landmark Commission so that there's subject matter expertise in historic neighborhoods. So I would think some things would be a little bit easier to decide than others, like windows. Usually you're putting in new windows because you want it to be more energy efficient. But I guess what the look of those windows would be is part of what the Landmark Commission would look at? Well, actually, Dave, it's not as simple as you might think. Uh, most of the historic district ordinances call for maintaining the original building material. Oh, okay. And so when it comes to wood windows, and I live in an historic district at Munger Place, so I've dealt with this over the last almost 30 years. Mm -hmm. They want you to maintain but repair the existing windows if they're rotted or if they are um, uh, have lost their glazing or whatever. And so many of the issues that come up is when people want to put in brand new uh, vinyl 
uh, energy-efficient windows in their 100-year-old house, mm -hmm. which would not be in keeping with the historic district ordinance. And so part of the role of the Landmark Commission is to educate homeowners about how and where they can get building components repaired or renovated and maintain that original building fabric. And what you just said, and, uh, and where you can get it done, that's very helpful. Yes. Because a homeowner who's just looking at ads on TV and uh, they can replace your windows for, you know, just nine ninety nine a month. Um, <laughs> they, that's right. And that's yeah. why it's so critical to have a, um, a well-informed landmark commission and staff who can refer people to craftsmen who can rebuild an old wood sash. Huh. Okay. And some of the other things like landscaping, what are the issues there? Well, there are certain types of landscaping that were uh, typically used during certain periods of time. And the idea is that we preserve the type of landscaping that might have been used during the uh, period in which those homes were built. Um, those are not generally very restrictive, but for example, in terms of the outer environment of the home, one of the things that a lot of the historic districts prohibit is uh, modern uh, brushed aggregate pavement, which would not have been around 100 years ago. Mm -hmm. And um, certain types of stone paving uh, would not have been used 100 years ago. Um, so it's, it's elements like that. One thing that uh, has also come up that's kind of humorous is people who wanted to put AstroTurf in their front yard. Oh, God. <laughs> I don't know how that comports with any neighborhood. See, on my first house, I was having trouble that year. It was the year that it was over 100 degrees uh, for like 40 days in a row. Uh, so my, and that was early 80s for anybody who doesn't remember that, like 80. One or eight, 1980. I don't remember which one it was. I think it was 1980. Yeah. 1980. Okay, so um, I was having trouble keeping the grass green, so I just painted it. <laughs> of course you would. <laughs> I didn't put in astroturf. Well, um, okay, so then like this new complex that's down the street from me, uh, it was an open field, and there were hundred-year-old oak trees. And this is in Oak Lawn. And my street is one of the few streets in Oak Lawn that has oak trees and has lawn, which is, I guess, where the name came from. Uh, but these 100-year-old oak trees were just torn down uh, to make way for this really god-awful apartment complex. Um, that would be within keeping of a, uh, a, a local ordinance for um, development? Well, um uh, it was probably not in an historic district. Right, it's uh, not. The Oakland area is not an historic district. And so there are no enforceable regulations on tree preservation there. Ah. Um, but there are things such as the recently adopted Comprehensive Environmental and Climate Action Plan that was adopted last year by the, plan, by the city council. And it prescribes 97 recommendations for how we can combat climate change and air and water pollution. And one of uh, a series of recommendations in that plan is that we preserve our tree canopy, that we preserve our green space, because as we all know, 
plants absorb carbon dioxide, which is a greenhouse gas that uh, is contributing to climate change. And so it would be consistent with that plan. Now, those are not legally enforceable requirements. It is a plan with recommendations. But it tells us that that's one of the priorities that we should try to pursue in the development of our city is preservation of particularly our mature tree canopy. So it's very unfortunate that oak tree canopy was removed. Yeah, it was a couple of dozen uh, trees, you know, with like mm -hmm. two, three, four foot wide trunks. It, it was, it hurt to watch those come down. So I'm sure. Uh, and now they're unable to rent out the property and we're very sad about that. <laughs> 300 mm -hmm. units sitting empty. So I, I have a question for you, Paul. I'm going to segue now from Oakwan and the idea of housing um, and into um, a more, something more specific. So many um, people in this city believe that all the LGBTQ plus people live in Oakwan. And of course we don't. We live in all 14 districts across the city. But we do see Oakwan as this, in this, an historic place for us, an entertainment district today. Um, but nobody can afford to live in Oakwan. Um, what are, what are your thoughts on affordable and, and truly affordable housing? Um, and perhaps there's a, a level, what does affordable mean? And is there a level below affordable? Um, we know that the one above it is impossible for many people. Um, so what are your plans on, on addressing the desperate housing situation that we have in our city? Well, that's a very important question and a very important issue in District 14. I have heard from so many people uh, throughout my tenure on the Plan Commission, let alone during this campaign, who are getting priced out of their housing in neighborhoods such as Oaklawn. And that's because of the influx of people who want to live in District 14, who recognize it as a uh, very livable district in the city, close to all kinds of uh, city resources uh, and employment centers such as downtown. And so what's happening is that they're bidding up the price. Developers are responding by building uh, new uh, higher density multifamily buildings that they tout as luxury apartments. And they have price tags for rent that are in the luxury stratosphere. And the problem is, is that many of those projects are removing affordable units that exist today. And so I have several uh, platform ideas about how we can address the situation, which the city has determined we're 20,000 units short on affordable housing citywide. Wow, that's a uh, lot. One that's of them, a lot. <laughs> it is. It is a lot. And that was as of... Uh, several years ago, and I suspect that the problem has gotten even greater since then. So one of the first things that I want to do is to preserve as much of a current affordable housing as we can. And the idea is that um, we have older, uh, particularly apartment units, but also houses in the district that, uh, because of their age, are um, currently very affordable. They have affordable rents or affordable purchase prices. And we need to do what we can to preserve the neighborhoods that have the housing, uh, whether it be single family or multifamily, that has that kind of housing so that people can stay in their current dwellings. And there are a couple ways to do that. Um, one of them is to look very carefully at 
in the developer's plans when they come in and request a rezoning to replace low-rise but affordable housing with uh, high-rise, high-density but luxury housing. And um, that's what's really pushing a lot of people out of the affordable range in Oak Lawn. Uh, there are appropriate places for that kind of development, um, but we need to look at alternative locations such as land that's already zoned for high-density residential rather than the low-density MF2 style zoning that we find most of the garden style older apartments in. And Developers don't want to do that, of course, because the higher density zone land that's already zoned for what they want to do is much more expensive than the low density zone land. They want to buy the lower density zone land because they make more profit off of that. Sure, well, there are several examples, several examples in Oak Lawn where they took a block that had maybe five houses on it, uh, tore it down, and now there's a 20-story building. So, that's true, yeah. and uh, a current example that's been very controversial is the Lincoln Katy Trail project that's mm -hmm. on Carlisle at Hall Street. That currently has 115 affordable apartment units for condominiums, although many of them are rented out, and um, they are one of the few larger developments on four acres of land that are still affordable in the Oakland area. Mm -hmm. and. They uh, have just been zoned out of their uh, houses by the approval of the city council a couple of weeks ago of a new um, eight-story, seven or eight-story building that would have 315 mm. luxury apartments in it. Wow. And so that would not only remove 100 net units of affordable housing, but it would also take out 102 trees. Oh, oh, that's painful. Paul, we need to take a break. We're talking to Paul sure. Ridley. He's running for District 14 uh, Dallas City Council uh, in the runoff that is being held on June 5th. Uh, we'll be back with more Lambda Weekly right after this. And I'm Dave Taffet here in the studio with the late Patty Fink. And our guest is Paul Ridley. He is running for D Dallas City Council District 14. Uh, early voting starts on May 24th goes through June 1st, no voting on Memorial Day, uh, and then take a break and election day is June 5th on a Saturday. Uh, if you live in Dallas County, you can vote in any uh, po polling place. Right. And in fact, Dallas County is completely vote centers. So like on in early voting, you can go to any location in the county and vote no matter where you live, what your precinct is, or what might be on your ballot. You'll get your perfect ballot when you go to those vote centers, no matter where you go. And the same now is true on election day. It used to be you had to go in where in the precinct where you're registered to vote, but now, um, like Travis County and other places in Texas, you can go anywhere on election day. So there's, it makes it really easy. If you're out and about just, you know, doing your fun on a Saturday, you, there's a vote center near you. So go vote. Right. There, there are six runoffs. Where it gets confusing is if you're in district 12, which is in Collin County, doesn't count for Collin County. Yet. Right. <laughs> right. Um, so we're talking to Paul Ridley. We were talking a little bit about um, neighborhoods and developing uh, uh, luxury housing. I live in District 2, and I call myself the Sarah Palin of District 2 because I'm moving. I will be in District 13 
but I'll be able to see District 2 from my window. It's right across the street. From your porch. <laughs> from my porch, from my front porch. So, um, Paul, uh, we were, I think I cut you off in the middle of um, what we were talking about with uh, luxury housing going in in Oakland. Yes, uh, one of the other ideas that I have to address that issue is called inclusionary zoning. This was an idea that I pioneered in Dallas six years ago while serving on the plan commission. And I was struck at the time when we were being requested to approve developers' plans for high-density luxury housing that they weren't giving anything back to the city. And so I asked the simple question, why can't you give back a certain percentage of your units at affordable rents? Well, it was a very controversial idea six years ago. Uh, even the plan commission that I served on had many skeptics. It was a new idea. The staff didn't uh, have any knowledge about how that would work. And developers were just aghast that we were going to require them to have a certain number of affordable units. And it wasn't a requirement, really. It was an ask if they were going to get the benefit of additional density to build more units, it just made sense to me that some of those units should be made affordable. And by affordable, that is a measure of income based upon median family income in the county. And it's usually at 80% of median family income or less. And the idea was that the developer would build their unit just as they had originally planned, but they would dedicate a certain percentage of the units of different sizes, different number of bedrooms for affordable units. They would be exactly like the for market units, but they would be rentable only to people who met the income criteria. And uh, that idea, after meeting original resistance, uh, became accepted and now is commonplace. And I'm pleased to say that it is returning in new buildings, affordable units, to people who otherwise couldn't afford to live in that neighborhood. And the beauty of that system is that it creates new affordable units in areas of the city that are called high opportunity areas. That is, they're near places of employment, shopping, food stores, mass transportation, etc., so that they're not in the far-flung uh, areas of the city and away from all of those necessary services and transportation options. And so it, it puts people at uh, all different income levels on the same footing. And this is primarily directed towards workforce housing for our civil servants, our police and fire personnel, for school teachers, and people who are serving our community but aren't making a lot of money doing it. We should have decent, affordable housing for them. So you really believe that those kind of people should live here with us? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I'm kidding. So, yeah, um, since I moved to Oak Lawn, because I lived in Oak Cliff for about 30 years, but about five years ago, six years ago, I moved to Oak Lawn, and my rent has increased by 30 or 40 percent. In those five or six years? Yes. Wow. Yeah. So wow. That, that's how unaffordable even what was seen as affordable has gotten. So, um, neighborhood parks, uh, that's one of the big things that make a neighborhood livable. Um, I, I, I couldn't agree more. Yeah. <laughs> 
Um, as a city council person, what can the city council do to enhance our city parks, to make them more accessible, to, to make them open to more people? I mean, they're open to everybody, but unless something's going on there, you, you don't generally go. So what are some of the things that have worked to make some of our parks successful? Well, you're right, Dave. Our neighborhood parks have become increasingly important to the livability of our district and our city. As we get uh, more people living in Dallas and increased housing density, we need even more uh, the relief provided by open green spaces. And so our neighborhood parks must be preserved in well-maintained condition and accessible to the neighborhoods in which they're located. There has been a threat recently to some of our neighborhood parks in District 14. One of the principal ones was Revershawn Park over in Oak Lawn. Only a part of that park is actually in District 14. Most of it is in District 2. But last year, uh, actually going back to late 2019, there was a move afoot at City Hall that uh, would have privatized the park and given control of it to a private developer for purposes of commercializing it to build a new baseball stadium that would seat 5,000 people, it would become a concert venue, and yet they wouldn't provide parking for those 5,000 seats, and therefore the parking would overflow the park into the surrounding neighborhoods, which are located in District 14. And there's not enough street parking in that area for uh, that no. many cars? No, there definitely is not. Uh, so it would have been uh, basically parking chaos. Um, unfortunately, there was no neighborhood outreach before the decision was made to do that. And so it caused an uproar in Oakland, particularly in District 14, because their opinions weren't considered and there weren't any public meetings scheduled to even entertain what the neighborhood wanted to see done with the park. Fortunately, that deal, after some flip-flopping uh, by the incumbent in District 14 as to what to do with the park, uh, he was a champion of privatizing it, and um, that ultimately fell through when the developer who was identified to privatize it didn't come up with the signed contract or the front money to advance the project. And so that was canceled last October the 1st, which was the deadline. So now we're still in the process of wondering what to do with the park. There is a task force that has been appointed by the park board to look at some issues with regard to the use and improvements to the park. And so they are going to meet this summer sometime to look at those options. But my approach to neighborhood parks is that they should remain neighborhood parks and not become concert venues or places for um, region-wide sporting events or um, facilities that don't have sufficient parking for the people that would have to travel across town to get to them. They should be maintained with neighborhood access at all times and neighborhood-type facilities, uh, basketball courts, uh, softball fields, soccer pitch, tennis courts, those kinds of um, uh, facilities that neighborhood residents will frequently use. And just open space to walk your dog, to enjoy being outside of your house on a pleasant afternoon. 
And so that's a very high priority for me. Or, or we could just put in some more luxury housing in River Shampoo. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, one of the things I wanted to talk about, you're a member of the Oakland Committee, and in all the years we've done this show, Oakland Committee is very instrumental in uh, reshaping what some projects in the Oakland area look like. Uh, I don't think we've ever talked about it. Um, I remember show long, years and years, years ago. Years and years ago, okay. Um, tell us what the Oakland Committee is and, <coughs> and why it's even there. Sure. Um, the Oakland Committee is really a unique organization in Dallas. Um, going back 40 years, the city adopted what's called the Oakland Plan to govern the future development of the Oakland neighborhood. And as part of that uh, process, the Oakland Committee was created to oversee implementation of the plan. And how it has evolved, it is a neighborhood membership organization. You have to either work or live in Oakland uh, to be able to be a member. And um, when you are a member, then you have the right to vote on making recommendations on rezoning requests or board of adjustment variance requests that are within what's called Plan District, uh, Development District 193. And um, that encompasses most of Oak Lawn. And uh, the idea is that developers come to their monthly meetings with the projects that would require rezoning or variance of city uh, current land zoning regulations and uh, present their uh, ideas, the Oakland Committee, which would then review them and provide, well, they would ask questions to the developers and then in the, um, not in the presence of the developers, after the presentations are concluded, they will discuss them and vote on whether they support the project wanted to make certain changes and come back for re-review or uh, do not support it. And then they send a letter to the City Plan Commission and the Council about their recommendations. So it's a unique organization in the sense that it has been around for 40 years. It meets regularly once a month on the first Tuesday evening. And they have, in the course of that time period, developed a great deal of expertise in reviewing rezoning requests and development plans to determine whether it's going to be compatible with their neighborhood or not. And so they're really a watchdog for the Oakland plan to um, measure projects against the Oakland plan and the needs of their neighborhood and to provide constructive feedback to developers. I've seen many developers in nine years that I've been attending the Oakland Committee meetings say after their process, it was an arduous process, but we ended up with a better project than we started with. And there's no higher recommendation for a neighborhood organization like this than that. Right, so what the Oakland Committee does, you're not there to stop development, you're there to make it fit into the neighborhood better. Is that a good description? That's exactly right. Um, and That's to become exactly a member right. of the Oakland Committee, really all you have to do is start attending meetings. Well, you have to be um, a resident and a, of Oakland yeah. or work there. 
and uh, I think there's uh, um, moderate dues of $50 a year or something like that. Um, but yes, it's open to anyone who meets those uh, criteria. Oh, okay. So what are some of the suggestions that you've made, or what are some of the things that you usually or, or have most often recommended to developers? In the context of the Oakland Committee? In yeah, the yeah. Generally. Yeah, no, okay. uh, in, in the context of the Oakland Committee. What, what are some of the committee suggestions to developers? What types of things are suggested? Well, one of the things that they like to see is a good landscaping so that it blends in with the current green nature of Oakland. And uh, another thing is pedestrian spaces so that we have wide sidewalks for um, walkability and uh, also for integration of one plan into the neighborhood so that we don't just wall off like a silo a block with a new development with no relationship to the surroundings. Uh, that would entail setback, limitations, height, um, the, uh, in some sense, the architecture of the building in terms of materials and design and um, things of that nature. Okay. Um, okay. Um, yeah, I wanted to, to talk to you about um, redistricting. Um, if you could quickly, we only have a couple of minutes before our next break. Um, but, you know, traditionally, Oakland has been one community, but it, for forever, since 14-1, the line just dividing 14 and 2 has come right down Cedar Springs. So the entire community of interest is split in half. Um, and we've always taken advantage of that by having... Two, two advocates on the council instead of yeah, one. Yeah, originally that was done, and um, I was told directly so that you can never elect a gay person to the city council. Right, and look how many we have. So what we did was we elected a gay person in 14 and a gay person in 2 and told the city, I, I mean, I always called that the time the gay community told the city to go, mm. yeah, you know, don't, exactly. don't mm with us. Um, so we, we, we need Do you want to, to take our break? Okay, why don't we take our break first, uh, and then, Paul, I, uh, I just want to know what you think of, uh, you know, keeping it split. Should it be one district? Uh, you know, should the community be kept together? You're listening to Lambda Weekly on 89.3 KNOM FM. I'm Dave Taffet here with uh, the late Patty Fink, and I had to look because... I know, I, you don't even remember my name. Well, I... Couldn't remember if it was you or Laurent. We'll be back. <laughs> Paul Ridley is our guest. We'll be back with more Lambda Weekly right after this. And that was Valetta Lil, former city council person from District 14. Uh, we are talking to Paul Ridley, who is running for District 14 City Council. Next week, David Blewett will be our guest. He's the incumbent in that seat and running for re-election. Um, so, so, Paul, um, we were talking before the break about... Um, the, this idea that redistricting will be part of our process um, in the coming term, I, um, I think, uh, for the Dallas City Council. And just to be clear for everyone, Dallas City Council members serve two-year terms. We vote in odd years um, in May, typically. Uh, they're inaugurated in late June. They take July off. Um, traditionally every year and then they at the end of two-year term they're up for re-election again until they've done eight years in a row or if you're someone like Sandy Grace and you do eight years you go you have a fallow year or two 
a term or two, and then you come back and do another eight years. <laughs> so, um, uh, but again, redistricting is part of this process across the board, and it also applies to the city of Dallas, and that'll be coming up soon. Um, Paul, what are your thoughts on Oakwan? We've been a traditionally, you know, divided um, neighborhood. Neighborhood, yeah. The line is literally down Cedar Springs. If you stand at Oakwan Library, um, you're in 14, and if you go over to JR's, you are in District Two. Mm-hmm. So, um, what are your thoughts about um, that that redistricting process, and what do you think your influence will be in that? And what do you think the outcome should be specific to 14 and and, and Oquan? Well, Dallas has an independent redistricting commission that has already been appointed uh, to consider the results of the decennial census. And they will be meeting later on this year and present recommended boundaries for the districts in the city to the city council. Now, the city council has the right to review those recommendations and make changes if they wish to uh, before they adopt the new districts. And it's too early at this point to anticipate what the independent commission will recommend. Um, so I can't comment about what's going to happen, but um, I do uh, feel strongly that we should try to keep a community or a neighborhood within the same district. Um, that said, if the purpose in splitting Oaklawn into two districts was to prevent uh, the election of any one gay council member, that clearly has failed. And in <laughs> miserably, fact, uh, it is <laughs> or spectacularly. Well, uh, I, I would say for the benefit of the city and the gay community. Um, And it's uh, clear now that with the evolution of society's attitudes towards uh, the gay community, that that uh, is not a barrier to election. We've seen this not only on the city council, but in other state and national races. And so... um, that is uh, reflected in the makeup of our city council now, in that there are gay council people who are not in District 2 or 14. And um, so that's, I don't think, an issue anymore. Um, with regard to splitting the community, um, I, I think we need to look at the demographics, how those may have changed, and uh, see how they affect the makeup of both districts 2 and 14. You know, the city charter requires that as a result of redistricting, we balance the population between the districts relatively equally. And so because District 14 has had a large influx of population, that means that geographically it's going to have to shrink. And I don't know just where it's going to need to shrink, uh, and that's something that I think uh, I will need to look at the entire district in consultation with adjoining uh, district representatives and see where common sense can prevail. And, uh, one of the big issues in the legislature this year is trans kids because that affects the power grid, the tornado that we had, uh, and the destruction with you know the climate change and everything else. Uh, apparently, to members of the legislature. Um, but with trans kids, 
Yeah, um, I wanted to ask you too about the the whole um, approach that many in today's society are taking toward trans trans people, and particularly trans kids and trans women of color. Um, the trans community has just been really hard hit in terms of um, the hatred coming out in codified law around the country, um, but also it hits home here in our own community with the the loss to brutal murders of trans women of color. What do you think that you can do as a council member to address um, that violence in our, in our city? And we've had many over the last year and, and year or two, uh, for sure, and, and certainly before that. Um, and and the, our approach to how we, how we um, put our arms around our community of, of trans people, including trans kids. Sure. Um, I recognize that as an important issue and uh, intolerance of others' differences is something uh, that is damaging to our whole society, regardless of what those differences may be. Um, In this particular case, I think the best inroads that we can make are in education, and that starts with our schools. I think we need to uh, ensure that we have a curriculum that recognizes the differences in sexual orientation and gender identification amongst people. And I think that's also the best prospect to start with the youngest generation in our society so that they are made to understand that this is something that is part of our society and that they should be sensitive to those kinds of differences. It's really tough to make uh, to teach an old dog new tricks. Um, and it's just critical that we start at a young age educating people and ensuring that they understand the importance of tolerance of differences in society. You know, it's nothing different than what everybody, I think, was taught as a kid growing up, that not everybody is the same. It may not have been over sexual orientation, but the idea was planted uh, early in my life that we need to be tolerant of others as they hopefully will be tolerant of our differences. Uh, In terms of uh, legal issues, uh, I think we need to enforce the laws that we have on the books to uh, go after offenders who are perpetrating hate crimes. And if that requires additional legislation at the state, level, then I think that that is something that our representatives should undertake. Good. We are just about out of time. Uh, You have a minute to wrap up. So would you like to put in a pitch for your your candidacy? Well, I would just like to close by saying that experience matters on the city council. I bring 12 years of service as a volunteer on city commission. And that experience is going to equip me, I believe, well to serve the needs of our district and our city on the city council. I also have the educational background in architecture, urban planning, and law that I think are much needed on the city council so that I can review critically the recommendations of staff in these areas and also to have a vision for what our city can be 
And that's where the urban planning aspect of my background, I think, is important. So that we aren't just uh, uh, stamping out fires from day to day or worrying about what we're going to do about some crisis next week. But we're looking down the road a year, 10 years, 20 years to see what we want the city to become and creating the plans and the steps necessary to result in that future that we want. Good. Paul, it was a pleasure having you. If you do get on the council and um, can affect the, uh, the council lines, I'd rather be in District 2 again rather than District 13, <laughs> so just move that. I'll keep that in mind, Dave. Good. Thank you. I'm I in District 9, so I'm way over on the other side, so don't worry about me. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks so much, Paul. Thank you for being with us and for all of us here at Lambda Weekly. Uh, oh, we're going out with some music from Nancy Lamott. This is a CD I found that we used to play back in the 90s when our show used to play a lot more music. Um, so Nancy Lamott, David Blewett will be with us next week, and everybody have a good week. <laughs>